I think it's like finding out that Mick Jagger is singing back up on You're So Vain. I think you can't unhear it and it adds to the experience. Welcome to You're Wrong About, the podcast where we tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Ooh, that's nice. Because we're going to put Cato under oath this episode, right? We are. Yes, that was super topical. So help us God. That was beautiful. I do think that the whole truth is fundamentally inaccessible to human beings. I only <laughs> quibble with that. But that is the thing that people say in this situation. So, like, I'm faulting the legal system. I'm not faulting the tagline. I am Michael Hobbs. I'm a reporter for The Huffington Post. My name is Sarah Marshall, and I'm working on a book about the satanic panic. And we are on Patreon at patreon.com slash you're wrong about and lots of other places. And if you're in quarantine and you can't do it right now or you don't want to, we know it's weird out there and don't feel obligated. Yes, I concur. Do whatever you want. Under capitalism, people either have too much or not enough money. And yeah. all things being a numbers game, you probably are one of the people with not enough. So, like, buy yourself some fancy butter. <laughs> <laughs> so what uh, what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about when Cato met Marsha. It's the Ooh. Flintstones meet the Jetsons of our Ooh. story. Yes. Are you excited? Yeah, we're finally getting to the point in, like, all those anthology movies that came out in the 90s that like follow one character for like an hour and a half and they all meet in like the last 10 minutes. Yes, we're doing that. We're making a, a high concept, low budget 90s miniseries. <laughs> so we're talking about Brian Cato Kalen. And I would love for you to bring us up to speed about, you know, who is Cato Kalen and what adventures of his have we observed so far in this story? Well, Cato was a friend of Nicole's who witnessed abuse but felt himself to be powerless to stop it. And mm. he ended up falling into OJ's orbit. And then sort of by accident, he ended up becoming the primary alibi witness for OJ on the night that Ron and Nicole were murdered. Mm -hmm. Since then, he has spoken to the cops and was released back into basically OJ's custody. He's moved back into yeah. the guest house. So when we left Cato, he was sleeping on the floor in OJ's house on the night of June 13th, protecting the housekeeper Gigi. Mm -hmm. And so on the morning of Tuesday, June 14th, Cato wakes up to find the house full of breakfast because area restaurants are still sending free food over. Oh, yeah. And so Cato Kalen, The Whole Truth by Mark Elliott, which I am relying on for my Cato's Eye view, tells us that by early morning, Cato was up dressed and returning the dozens of phone calls left on his machine. And he gets a call from Bob Shapiro at two, who two days before making the announcement publicly that he's taking over as OJ's primary criminal defense attorney is like, hey, Cato, I'm taking over as OJ's primary criminal defense attorney, and I have some questions for you. Okay. And I would also say, I was thinking about this as I was reading the Bob Shapiro parts of my research for this episode. It's interesting to me that there are like a lot of really good performances in the People versus OJ Simpson, mm -hmm. and yet I don't automatically see and hear them in my head now, except Bob Shapiro. Oh, yeah? When I read anything about Bob Shapiro now, I just hear John Travolta. <laughs> 
in my head. John Travolta with his little eyebrow wig. Yeah. I have vacillated for ever since that show came out on like, I was like, is this like an okay performance or like a weird, is it weird? For a while I was like, I think it's like really bad actually. Yeah. And now I think it's great. So it, yeah. So just know that that's in my head, I guess. Yeah. So Cato has his call with Bob Shapiro. And meanwhile, he's still at OJ's house where... Jermaine Jackson of the Jackson Five and also Dionne mm-hmm. Warwick stopped by. What? Like there's just a continual stream of people coming by to show their support because they're seeing OJ as a grieving husband right. at the stake, right. apparently. God, does he have any friends that aren't like C-list celebrities? Yeah, like old white men who he plays golf with. Yes. That's like his two friend groups. Those are his two lists on Facebook. <laughs> Dion Warwick and the CEOs, those are yeah. his friends. Yeah. And so Mark Slotkin, who's a friend of OJ's, who is married to Robin Greer, who's a good friend of Nicole's, mm-hmm. comes by with Bobby Chandler, who had been OJ's teammate. Okay. And according to Cato, something weird happened. Mark Slotkin said out loud that he'd heard something that afternoon about noises outside Cato's room Sunday night. Cato wondered how he knew that. Oh. Suddenly, Slotkin looked directly at Cato and said, you better get your story straight, man. This oh. is OJ. Think about what you know and make sure you really know it. So he's being sort of low-key intimidated. Do we think it's on the orders of Shapiro? Like, who would have told them? I don't know. Yeah, potentially. I mean, I can see there are many routes for information to travel in this house where, like, there seem to be a bunch of people coming in and out and sharing information with each other. So we could have gotten it from Shapiro, I think, or... From somewhere else. Yeah. To me, the point is that OJ's sort of network of friends and associates are maybe without needing to all get on the same page in any kind of like a briefing or like, hey, like, let's protect our friend. Like, let's make sure that this Cato guy who like showed up recently and was originally living with Nicole and who isn't really of our circle, like, let's make sure he's on the same page as us, which is that, like, our friend couldn't have done this, right? Right. Do OJ a solid. And so Arnell, OJ's daughter from his first marriage, volunteers to take Cato to the meeting with Shapiro. And so Mm -hmm. the house is, of course, still being staked out by reporters. So Mm -hmm. they're mobbed on their way out. Cato doesn't have a car? Is this like a man in LA without a car? He does have a car, but it's like, it's parked outside of the compound. And so it's like surrounded by reporters and stuff. So he can't really access it. But Cato says of this, that he's also getting the feeling that everyone in OJ's camp was trying to make sure he was never completely out of their sight. Mm. Which, yeah. Yeah. I see that. (laughs) I don't think Cato's being paranoid. Yes. If I had killed someone, that is how I would treat the main witness against me. Okay. So Cato is taken in and he meets Bob Shapiro and Shapiro basically sits him down and starts questioning him first about who is he? Where is he from? What does he do for a living? What's his relationship with Nicole? Mm -hmm. How long did he live at her house? Had he ever seen her and OJ fighting? Mm. Then they talk about the events of Sunday, the hours leading up to the murder, the trip to McDonald's, Mm. the duffel bag, the thumps on the wall. And throughout this, Shapiro's cell phone keeps ringing. Mm -hmm. Finally, he gets a call that makes him happy and he announces that they have retained a forensics expert that they wanted for the defense team. And throughout this meeting, Shapiro is kind of assembling the defense team as they go and 
calling hmm. around and signing on experts. He's showing up in the post-credit sequence of all of their movies and inviting them to join. <laughs> Does Cato, is Cato still telling the same story that he told the cops? Is he editing his story already for Shapiro? According to Cato, he is telling the same story okay. consistently the whole time, okay. which is that he was on the phone with his friend Rachel. He heard thumps on the wall of his guest house at what will turn out later to be the time that OJ would have been re-entering the property. Although, mm -hmm. of course, Cato at the time has no way of knowing that. Yeah. And the, and tell tell me what else you remember Cato sort of being a witness to that night. So he had gone to McDonald's with OJ. OJ was acting really weird, but in a way <laughs> that Cato couldn't really put his finger on. They came back. OJ was still acting weird. And then Cato heard this thump and he went out of the guest house and went to the main house and OJ was supposed to catch a flight that night mm -hmm. and the limo driver is waiting outside the house and OJ is still acting weird. And then Cato sees this mysterious blue duffel bag that we mm -hmm. now think is like the murder clothes. But at the time, Cato's just like, huh, an extra duffel bag. And then nobody ever talks about it ever again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Cato is also the last person who saw OJ before the murders took place. So right. Cato is the single most important person in terms of establishing the timeline. And the timeline right. really is pretty key here. So right. yeah, isn't it weird? It's like, you know, those, those fairy tales about like, like there's one about the sort of town fool who like, he goes to a, a strange kingdom to seek his fortune and he accidentally saves the king because he's waving away a mosquito, but the king thinks he's waving him over. And so he gets up and then his throne is struck by lightning. And right. he's like, my God, this man is a genius. Right. Like, I feel like Cato is just accidentally important in right. that way. He's like Forrest Gump. He's just like stumbling through all of these like world historical events without really having any inkling of how big of a deal he's going to be in all of them. Yeah. And who could imagine also? Certainly not Cato. So... Bob is questioning Cato. He's taking all these cell phone calls and putting the team together. And eventually Shapiro asked Cato how he was doing. Cato said fine and said again that he would be totally honest about everything. <laughs> That's all we want you to do, Cato. Just tell the truth. Poor naive Cato. When the interview concluded, Shapiro turned off the tape recorder. Cato asked him to tell OJ that he loved him, missed him, and was praying for him. Shapiro then silently stared at Cato for a long time before speaking. <laughs> When he <laughs> this is kind of meshing well with Michelle remembers in terms of right? like the, the kind of confused narrator. Because also Bob Shapiro must be listening to this and thinking, holy shit, this is so incriminating. I feel like Bob Shapiro is like, this man is playing five dimensional chess yeah, with yeah. me. What kind of game is he up to by asking me to pray for OJ? And Kato's yeah. just like, I just wish him well. And Kato has no idea like the information that he's sitting on and how how incriminating it is and how perfectly it matches with the timeline of the murders. And he's just like, well, of course I'm going to tell the truth. Yeah. All I have to do is tell the truth and yeah. then everything's going to be fine. And Shapiro is probably like, oh, fuck, if this guy tells the truth, we're never going to win this case. And I don't even think he's necessarily that innocent about it. Like, I think he does have kind of a, a weird, you know, he's aware of the fact that OJ was being weird. Like, he's like, hey, OJ has been weird. This is weird. Yeah. This just feels... I feel sick to my stomach about this right. whole thing. We should also keep in mind that Cato wrote this book. Yes. So it's also very much in Cato's incentives to be like, all I wanted to do was tell the truth. So he could be playing up his sort of like lapdog innocence a little bit. Yes. I think we also like experience multiple things at once. You know, yeah. I think that like 
his reaction immediately following the murders could be fundamentally one of innocence and also self-interest because we've seen him to be a self-interested guy. Yeah. And, you know, and he also has has real reason to fear OJ and his associates. They're powerful and, you know, clearly can inflict some damage. Right. So Cato asked Shapiro to tell OJ he loved him, missed him and was praying for him. Shapiro then silently stared at Cato for a long time before speaking. When he did, his words were pointed. Do you think he did it, Cato? Cato returned the stare. After a pause, he said, God, I hope not. (laughs) Poor Cato. I love that. That's an honest answer. If he wanted to, like, you know, smooth things over with OJ's lawyer, he'd be like, no, of course, I I don't. He's not capable of that. But he's like, I sure hope he didn't. Gee willikers, mister. (laughs) So they have a two hour interview and then. Arnell does come and pick Cato up. And then afterwards, Cato is basically describing to Arnell what Bob Shapiro asked him and how he responded. And as he's describing the thumps on the wall, he says, I noticed for the first time that Al Cowlings was standing behind her. Al Cowlings being a very close friend of OJ's and the guy who's going to be his driver in the Bronco chase in a few days. So Cato says, I noticed for the first time that Al Cowlings was standing behind her, staring at me with a look of disgust on his face. I smiled at him and nodded, but he didn't smile back. I wondered what that was all about. I felt sick to my stomach, even though I hadn't eaten in nearly two days. I couldn't understand why AC had looked at me like that. I hadn't done anything. I mean, I guess they're they're preemptively mad at him for betraying OJ, I guess. Is that what's going on? Yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, you, you direct anger at people who know things that implicate people you love, right? Like, right. that's frowning at the messenger. Right. And Cato says... I had the feeling I was being watched, that anything I said and did was being monitored, evaluated. I suddenly felt the need to get out of there. And it's like, yeah. Yeah. That that sounds like a, yeah. a positive direction. Get an Airbnb. Move out of the guest house. So he calls his friend Grant, who was the friend he was with in Aspen when he met Nicole. Mm-hmm. And Grant picks him up and takes him to his house. But right before Cato leaves, he gets a phone call from Howard Weitzman, OJ's original lawyer, who then puts OJ on with him. And he says, Juice, how are you? Is everything okay? Yeah, OJ drawled. I'm okay. What can I do for you? Anything? Just tell the truth. So he's being told in this kind of like creepy, coded way, like, just tell the truth, Cato. Just tell them what you know. I'm sure you're going to do the right thing. Just uh, do the right thing. I'm sure you're not going to betray OJ. Yeah. So Cato spends the night at Grant's, but then he asks Grant to take him back to OJ the next morning. Because it's the day of Nicole's wake and he has to get a suit. Mm-hmm. Originally, Cato was supposed to ride in one of the two limos that had been reserved for the family to Nicole's wake. But then at the last second, they're like, no, no, family only. Cato can't come. Okay. But then they let Arnell and OJ's son Jason's friends into the limos. Ooh. Apparently, this is the moment when Cato knows huh. that there's a rift between him and the Simpsons. Uh- that's interesting that that little thing is what made it clear to him. Yeah. That is like how we realize things where it's yeah. like stuff really piles up and becomes pretty obvious. And then like a little thing happens and you're like, oh, my God, I'm not yeah. in the family limos. Yeah. It sounds really trivial, but like finding out that you're not in a group chat with like people that you know is like legitimately devastating. And yeah. this feels like the 90s equivalent of that. You're like, you're not going to give me a ride? Yeah, because in the 90s, the economy was so good that people, whenever they wanted to gossip, they just rode around in a limo. Yeah. Let's let's <laughs> trick people into thinking that millennials really believe that. Yeah. 
So Cato <laughs> ends up driving himself to the wake and he has to fight his way through a crowd of people. I just want you to envision this because it's like a part of the daily lives of a lot of the people who the story is about. And it's just such a weird thing to imagine. Like he's like, okay, fine. I will drive my own car. I'm kind of worried it won't start because it's been five days, but that's the least of my problems because mm-hmm. the entire street is mobbed and there's people all over it. Mm-hmm. And so he gets his car started and then he's like trying to get out of his parking spot and there's just gawkers and camera people. The street is just packed. Yeah. Like I can't imagine it, it would be like driving through the zombies in the mummy or the right. followers of the mummy in the mummy. I don't know. <laughs> I can always tell when you've seen a movie recently when all of your metaphors come from the same movie. I've always seen The Mummy recently, to be fair. Like, there's rarely a time in my life when I can't be described as having watched The Mummy recently. This is like the third. (laughs) It's like that one time in The Mummy comment you've made. Well, that movie has everything, Mike. In a way, most things are like that one time in The Mummy. So I don't know what to tell you. But he does get to the wake. It makes him think of how he and Nicole used to go to church together because they were both raised Catholic. Mm -hmm. And he goes to view Nicole's body. And the book says he was surprised to see how genuinely beautiful she seemed in death. Mm. She was dressed in a black blouse that completely covered her neck all the way up to the chin, Mm. which, of course, is because of the wounds to her neck that killed her Mm -hmm. because she was almost beheaded. God. And... Cato prays for her, mm-hmm. and then after he leaves the viewing, he sees that OJ is sitting down and sort of wailing, it seems performatively, okay. and he's saying, I no longer have a wife. I'm left without a wife. There's no more Nicole. I don't have Nicole anymore. And Cato's like, I can't handle this any longer. I have to go. Like, I just can't watch this. Hmm. But as he's getting out to go, Cora Fishman, who's one of Nicole's close friends, comes up to Cato and throws her arms around him and kind of is sobbing and hugging him. And then she goes up to OJ and according to Cato starts pounding on his chest and saying, what happened? What about the kids? And OJ says, I loved her too much. And Cora says, why did you do this? How could you? Whoa, at the funeral? Yeah. Whoa. Multiple people heard him say, I loved her too much at Nicole's wake. Oh. I know. Ooh. And then what's what's interesting to me, too, is that at the end of all this, at the end of, like, feeling like his he's being monitored by OJ's friends and family and kind of pushed around, mm-hmm. he's like, well, I guess I'll sleep at OJ's again tonight. Oh. And he, like, once again sleeps in a corner of the living room on the floor. And it's like, but why, Kato? Yeah. Sleep at Grant's house. Yeah. And he must have other friends that he doesn't happen to mention in the book. I mean, he must have many people whose couch he can crash on. Yeah, he's an affable guy. Kato yeah. is everybody's friend. Like, yeah. I feel like he has lots of living room floors he could be sleeping yeah. in. So, I don't know. I can see that being motivated partly by him wanting to, like, not make the Simpson family think that he feels weird about anything. Right. Right. You know, for his own safety and also maybe out of being a people pleaser. Right. And the next day is the funeral where Nicole is is buried in Dana Point, where her parents live. And Cato sees OJ that day and he goes to OJ and says, I love you. And OJ says, sorry to put you through this, Cato. And Cato says, I just want you to know I'll be there for you always in any way I can. Which is like... What are you offering, Cato? What's that about? Yeah. And it's also weird that he hasn't concluded that OJ did it. 
I can see being in denial, but it's like he does seem to like get on some level. We're not getting a lot of him being like, but clearly I, I thought he was innocent at this time. Like Paul yeah. is very careful to be like, I could not conceive of the possibility that OJ could yeah. have killed anyone. So it just did not enter the transom of my mind. And like, we right. don't get that from Cato. I mean, I guess he doesn't know about like the blood and all that kind of other evidence at this point. But still, it's like you've seen somebody act violently towards someone. She dies. I, I mean, just interesting to me that uh, that Cato hasn't been like, it was clear to me that he killed her and I had to do this whole fake thing so that he wouldn't kill me too. Whereas what he's actually saying in the book is more like, uh, I didn't really know if he did it or not. And then you have to remember that this book is based on taped interviews that Cato did with the author before he gave testimony at OJ's trial. So the degree to which he needs to be equivocating Right, right now so that he doesn't say anything that contradicts his testimony later right that's all part of this also right so there's some like weird game theory shit going on about what's going to end up incriminating him yes like what could end up potentially incriminating him if he changes his story later or if he caves to any kind of pressure from oj's camp because right. by his own account he is fearful of his own safety it's so hard to know what to believe in these accounts yeah i mean once again like why go to the trouble of constructing a meticulously made unreliable narrator book when you could just read a celebrity memoir from the 90s yeah <laughs> there are a bunch of balloons <laughs> at the funeral reception at the brown's home and cato tells justin nicole's son that if he writes a note to his mother he'll tie it onto the balloon and send it to her oh that's sweet yeah i know i'm like damn kato that's like that's smart yeah. I, I feel like kato he's a kid person yeah he seems like he gets kids on like a fundamental level right yeah i think so and so according to kato justin writes a note that says mommy i miss you i know you're in heaven and kato oh. Attaches the note to balloon and Justin became very excited as he watched it until it completely disappeared into the high clear sky. Aww. And then later on at the reception, he's watching OJ with Sydney and Justin. And as he says later, has the feeling that this is the last unsupervised meeting that they're going to have for a while. Oh. So, right. you know, in his head, he's like, yep, they're going to take OJ in pretty soon. Hmm. So Cato does go to Grant's house that night. And mm -hmm. apparently Grant is very focused on Cato's newfound fame. He's talking about how much Cato has been on TV the last few days because, of course, the cameras keep catching him going in and out of OJ's house. And he says, when they make the TV movie out of your life, they better call me. Oh, my God. Tone it down, Grant. <laughs> Somebody's dead. According to Cato, Grant kept talking about how much money he'd already turned down to tell as much as he knew, which is like nothing. Right. He said he'd been offered upward of $100,000. Cato responded by saying he was grateful for his support. <laughs> and apparently Grant's girlfriend is also like hungry for all the details and keeps pestering Cato for information. Mm. And Grant also tells Cato at one point that he found a bucket outside of one of his windows and a bunch of cigarette butts on the ground next to the bucket from which he deduces that someone has been surveilling their house grant's house yeah where kato is staying and kato says i began to wonder was i a target and it's like maybe but more likely it was the media i mean this speaks to the absurd economics of the news media at the time a hundred thousand dollars for fucking grant who has like nothing interesting to say like yeah you can't get a hundred thousand dollars for like a blockbuster nonfiction book advance yeah but there was a time Apparently in this country, when he can get $100,000 for Cato Kalin's friend, 
Jones's testimony. Which would have been third hand information about OJ, right? Like yeah. a friend of a friend of OJ. Cato is a hot stock right now. It also, the way that it shapes the incentives, because Grant has every reason to lie. He knows that 100000 bucks is only going to go to him if he has juicy stuff to say. Right. So it's in his interest to say, like, yeah, Cato told me that OJ was like, yeah, I'll bet I'm going to kill her on Wednesday or whatever. Like, <laughs> he needs to punch this up. Oh, yeah. You now have, if you start drawing the circles around, like, OJ and then OJ's friends and then OJ's friends of friends, you've got, like, hundreds of people who could potentially make tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of dollars from, like, exaggerated scoops of what was really going on behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And all of them have an incentive to lie. Like, this is not a way to discover the truth about a situation. No. <laughs> Just, like, pour money on it and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, later on, we're going to learn about Paula's experience with the tabloids, mm. which includes, you know, them just completely making up all kinds of stuff about her and what she's mm. up to sexually. Right. And having a threesome with OJ and AC, mm. to which she responds, did they think I was trying to make alphabet soup? Oh, that's that's pretty good, Paula. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good joke. And also what's interesting about the media incentives at this point, too, is that if you're a reporter, you need to come back to your editor with a good story. You don't necessarily need to come back with a true story. No. Because the fact is, tabloids don't really run corrections. And even if they did, it would be on page 5035 and nobody would notice anyway. So right. even if you have a sense that like somebody is kind of a cynical operator who like one time chatted to Nicole and OJ at the grocery store and they really don't have much, and you can tell that they're playing up their story because you're going to give them $10,000, you don't really have an incentive to be like, uh, we're just not going to run this. This sounds fake. You're just going to fucking run it because it's going to get right. the equivalent of page views at the time. Yeah. It's a terrible system. Yeah. It's bad. And also it's it's removing from the record your role in the conversation, yeah. which potentially yeah. was substantial and which connects to our Michelle Remembers series. Right. Which this one makes look really short. <laughs> so you're Kato Kalen. You're a simple soul from Milwaukee. With an amazing torso. <laughs> With an amazing torso and beautiful hair. And mm. you came to the big city to seek your mm. fortune. And you worked as a comedy waiter. And now, at the end of this past whirlwind week of your life, you're staying with your friend Grant, who's pestering you about what's going on and wants to play you in a TV movie. And so into all this, add the sound of a telephone ringing at 6 in the morning on mm. Friday the 17th of June. And it is a call from detectives Tippin and Carr saying that they would like to take Cato in for just a little bit more questioning Ooh. and to be ready at eight o'clock. Is this, do I know this date? Is this the, the grand jury slash Bronco chase day? Yes, this is June 17th. Ooh, so this is like the, this is the room where it happens. This is like the big day when everything comes together. I don't understand that reference, but yes. <laughs> 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 One of Cato's friends in LA is a guy named Alan Merez who is the producer of Savate, which is a film that Cato worked on in the past. Oh. And so at this stage, Cato calls Alan because Alan used to be a lawyer before mm -hmm. he went into movies and is like, can you be my lawyer? That's how like normal people get lawyers. Yeah, they call their friend Alan. He's yeah. like the only lawyer they know. And Alan's yeah. like, I'm not a criminal lawyer. And I'm like a French kickboxing movie guy now. So <laughs> yeah. no, <laughs> but I can refer you to someone. And Cato's like, yes, please find someone to represent me. I have no idea what to do. Yeah. I imagine that he's like 
Winona Ryder in Reality Bites when Ben Stiller asks her if she has a lawyer and she's like, I don't have a lawyer. I don't even have a dentist. <laughs> this is a good time to cut to Marsha's account. Do you oh, want to do that? Yeah. Okay. So what kind of transition do we need to establish that we're in Marsha's POV? Like what like music would you use to signify her or something? We need like a horizontal white. <laughs> And then we cut to Marsha standing windswept on Tatooine. <laughs> so we're on Tatooine. Marsha is at the L.A. District Attorney's office. Mm -hmm. And can you remind us of where we last left Marsha? Yes. She is investigating this crime and increasingly irritated with the cops for being super duper incompetent. And she's the only one who is taking this seriously. And so in a sort of Hail Mary pass... The L.A. district attorney has decided to start essentially their own investigation by launching a grand jury hearing yeah. in which they can call witnesses and get them under oath and kind of lock their stories in in a way that the police are unwilling to do. Yeah. The DA's office convening the grand jury after Marsha has been pushing for it as a way to circumvent the police, to me, has the feeling of Marsha saying to the LAPD, I drink your milkshake. Yeah. <laughs> Very satisfying to me. <laughs> so after Gil Garcetti decides to convene the grand jury the following day, as Marsha's leaving the office on Thursday, she's already starting to hear rumors that the LAPD are negotiating with Bob Shapiro to have OJ voluntarily surrender. Mm. So it's Thursday night. Marsha's like, okay, things are coming together. We're going to convene the grand jury. We're going to see OJ surrender himself tomorrow, apparently. Mm -hmm. And with all that in mind, she says, first order of business, real in Cato Kalin. OJ Simpson was clearly Cato's benefactor. I could just about bet that had Cato known Simpson was a suspect, he would not have spoken so freely about the thump, for instance, and risk dumping his meal ticket. Okay. And so Marsha decides, like, okay, Cato knows more than he's said to us so far. He's withholding or being coy with us because... He doesn't want to implicate this guy yeah. who's supporting his Hollywood lifestyle. So we got to get him in and, and grill him a little bit. Oh, my God. This reminds me. I think there's something really typical about the way that we think that other people are making way more calculations than they are. Because mm -hmm. actually, Cato's just kind of clueless. And like, yeah, let's talk about Cato's adventures this week. Like, what, has he been cagey or like yeah. really acted in his own self-interest in any real and way? And he's not like doing this like 10 moves ahead type of chess. So, like, I'll give them this piece of information, but I'll withhold this other one to protect OJ. He's just like... Yeah, we went to McDonald's. It was fine. Like he hasn't really. Or he's like, I, I feel, I feel a weird feeling about it, but I don't know. Yeah. And it's like, right, you don't know. Like you have incomplete information. Right. I think the problem with what Cato saw, both in his own life and at trial, is that it looks bad for OJ, but it doesn't, you know, turn the key. Yeah. In yeah, any yeah, way, yeah. in terms of yeah. his lack of an alibi, like right. you, you can look at everything Cato knows and be like, well, OJ can still be innocent if right. everything that Cato observed is true. And it's like, yeah. He could be like Cato is not able to hang this guy. He's yeah. not as useful as the prosecution would like him to be. He's in this weird right. nether zone. And if he's making a calculation on like, I don't want to lose my free rent when this guy goes to jail, which I think on some level, we all make calculations based on how we personally benefit. But I think most of those calculations are invisible to us. And I don't think Cato right. is sitting there like, this guy's my meal ticket. I must change my story. I think that's no. probably affecting him in some way, but not not in a way that like 
he's deliberately masking his true feelings. Yeah, he's not like Wadsworth and Clue. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a good deal. And now he has to come up with more money than he had before. So that's a factor. But like, I think it's also fair to imagine that he could be just shocked and focused on the fact that his friend yeah. has been stabbed to death. Yeah. And maybe his other friend did it. And maybe he has some degree of responsibility for that. Like right. those wheels might not be turning consciously, but yeah. that doesn't mean that that's not somewhere in his mind also. But Marcia doesn't know all that. Yeah. And Mark, his view of Cato is, you know, he's shady. He's an obstacle. Yeah. And she's of course right about the fact that he shouldn't have been palling around with OJ during this time. And OJ shouldn't have had access to him. Yes. And she probably wants to compensate for all the fuck ups that the LAPD are making. Right. So if they're going too yeah. slow, she's going to go really fast to try to get as much information yes. out of him as fast as possible. Exactly. So to this point, Cato doesn't know that a grand jury is what's going on. And I doubt that he knows what a grand jury is. He just knows that the cops want to talk to him again. Right. And the last time the police talked to him, they detained him for like eight hours. Yeah. Cato's already been treated like a suspect. And that is the kind of experience that makes you think, I should probably get a lawyer. Yeah. That's probably a good idea. Like, this might be Cato's best idea in this entire book, and this is the yeah. thing he's going to be punished for most. Oh. So they subpoena Cato, and the detectives tell him he's required to appear before a grand jury today, and Cato says, fine, except he has no idea what a grand jury is. Yes, I did not know this until, like, two weeks ago. So I, I'm with Cato on this. He eventually ended up at the DA's office, was taken into a room, and introduced to David Kahn, a Los Angeles DA, and Deputy District Attorney Marsha Clark. Oh, I just wish we had dramatic music to play or something. I know you want like the camera to zoom in on her as she like turns around like, who's this Cato guy or something? Yes. And she's smoking. Yeah. yeah. Clark, dressed in a blue business suit, seemed to Cato quite friendly. Too friendly. Especially when she opened her eyes wide, put a big smile on her face and said, hi, how you doing? Can I get you anything? We're going to have a great time. This does kind of read like Michelle remembers. Yeah. She's like, I'm your special nurse, Cato. <laughs> I knew right then and there she was going to be trouble, he said. She asked me to follow her. Once again, I was on the go. She took me to her office, which I couldn't help noticing had a large poster of Jim Morrison on one wall. When she saw me looking at it, she smiled and said, you like Jim Morrison? So do I. Wait, so is he under oath? Is he like, how is this working? No, he's not under oath. He's being brought in for a chat at this point. Okay. She says, are you a friend of OJ Simpson's? Yes. A friend of Nicole's as well? Yes. You live in OJ's guest house, right? Yes. A nice guest house? Very nice. You have a bed? Sure. By a back wall, right? Cato felt he was being treated like a preschooler and wasn't going for it. Would you mind if I waited for my lawyer? That's when Clark's demeanor took a sudden radical shift. Her smile disappeared. Her eyes grew harder. What are you hiding, Mr. Kalen? Oh. Car chimed in. Yeah, Cato. What are you hiding? Come on. You can trust us. Jeez, you guys are trying to trick me. I want to wait for my lawyer. What are you hiding? Marcia Clark said, louder this time. I've got nothing to hide. I'll talk to you. I'll tell you everything I know. I just want to wait for my lawyer. Fine, Marcia said, and continued. And then she keeps questioning him. So that's oh. Cato's version. Okay. We're going to have a little Rashomon here, and we're going to get Marcia's version now. Okay. What do you think about that, though? It's, it just seems unethical. Like, this is how the justice system is supposed to work. The minute somebody says lawyer... You stop, you take a step back, and you get them a lawyer. Like, that's right. that's the foundation of the whole thing. And my feeling about all this is like, listen, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not a lawyer. I have an MFA in fiction. But <laughs> it does seem to me that it's like not a bad idea to just have everyone have a lawyer if they want one, just as a general default. Yes. Like, that's just how it is. Yes. So here's Marsha's version. It's Friday morning. 
and she is in her office when she gets a call from one of the cops on detail who says, Kalen's here with us, but he says he won't talk unless his lawyer's with him. This was extremely unusual. Witnesses don't arrive in the company of lawyers unless they're worried about being charged with a crime. From what I could see, Brian Kalen had no criminal liability. The events he'd witnessed on the night of June 12 had clearly occurred after the murders. I was afraid that his request for an attorney meant that Simpson had gotten to him. And it's like, Marsha, you're not wrong. Like, OJ has gotten to him several times, but like he has a pure silly heart. Yeah. And he wants a lawyer because that's a citizen's right. Yeah. It's weird how many people within the justice system cannot fathom that the justice system itself traumatizes people. Yeah. Like, why would you want a lawyer? It's like, because I've read books. Yeah. It's not like Lenny Briscoe offers to help you straighten everything out. Yeah. And like understands that you're telling the truth. I feel like her job depends on her not knowing. I mean, this is like the whole problem is that it's not... It's not a Marsha problem. It's like a prosecutor problem. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is the culture that she's in. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. A prosecutor's job is literally to like believe what the cops say and to never believe suspects. Yeah. And also, again, like structurally, she can't show frustration at the police or the other lawyers she's working with. Right. And not just because of the way the system is set up, which already is dumb, but because she's a woman, which makes it even less functional for her, it appears. Yeah. And so who can she take out her aggression on but Cato Kalin? Right. The cops brought Cato into my office at a little past nine. I looked up from my paperwork and saw for the first time that wild mane of dirty blonde hair, casual hip clothes, (laughs) goofy surfer boy slouch. My first thought, zone out case. She fucking hates him so much. It's so palpable. And Cato's like... Well, that's just like <laughs> your opinion, man. <laughs> I know. And people feel this way about Cato. A lot of people are just like, oh, I fucking hate that Cato Kalen guy. And it's like, why? Yeah. What do you hate puppies also? <laughs> yeah. It's so funny I said that because the next line is, hey, guy, I greeted him. Casual seemed the way to go. He shook my hand and fidgeted like a puppy. Mm. Puppies don't really fidget, don't really but, fidget but she's right. conveying the idea, so that's good. Yeah. She asks him if he feels prepared to go before a grand jury. She says, he answered in half sentences, nodding a lot, managing to say very little. Great, I thought. This guy can barely handle small talk. What's going to happen when we put him on the stand? But this, there's no such thing as small talk with a prosecutor. Like, this is, this <sighs> is what drives me nuts. Like, I know. You're acting like we're just two people at a party. Like, what do you do? How long have you lived in LA? That's not what's happening. Right. Like, you need to behave as if you know that he knows that you have the power to send him off the river. This is a situation in which he is legally required through a subpoena to speak with you. Regardless of what the content of your conversation is, like, what's your favorite Marvel movie? All of it takes place under the structure of, like, he is being compelled to be there. Yeah. There is no such thing as small talk under those circumstances, and Marsha should know that. Yeah, and then it's like, if someone is in a position of power, how do you make them behave in a way that is respectful to the amount of power that they have over anyone? Yeah. It's tough. And also maybe that means that the official roles that we give people shouldn't be so powerful if people are consistently uncomfortable with having that much. Yeah. And if it's if it's systematically invisible to them. Yeah. Like if we're going to give it to them, let's not render it invisible. Yeah. So Marcia says, I cut to the chase. Do you remember what you were doing when you heard the thump on your wall? I think I was talking to my friend Rachel. Okay. That was what he had told the cops. And again, she's like trying to outfox him. And it's like, Marsha, he's just sleepy. Yeah, just talk to him. (laughs) Just ask him stuff. And I love how she's like, I tried to approach him and he was taciturn and weird. And so I had to play hardball. And Kato's interpretation is like she was being 
weird and fake and treating me like a child and I didn't like it. I just want to be back at, at the beach fever set. I understood that world. I know. That's what I imagine he's thinking. Let him back into the French Kung Fu movie. And so Marcia says, did you tell her about what you'd heard? This is about Rachel. And he says, I really don't, um, you know, want to say anything until my attorney gets here. I mean, you seem real nice and all. And um, I really want to help you out. But um, I really can't talk about the case without him. I'm real sorry. Really, Marsha, I am. Mm. His words tumbled over each other as he squirmed in his seat and cast me a beseeching look. I wasn't buying this act. Cato wasn't as dumb as he appeared. He cut off the questioning expertly. Cato, I don't get it, I told him. Why do you think you need a lawyer? As far as I can tell, you have no liability whatsoever. Marsha! I know. And in Cato's description, Marsha continues rapid-fire questioning for a while. And then, Mr. Kalin, Marsha Clark finally said, leaning in and smiling, Are you having fun yet? Oh, God. He looked at her and said, Hey, is there a two-drink minimum? With that, the tension broke and everyone started, of all things, to laugh. Okay. I love that this is Cato's version. Where he breaks the tension by telling a joke and like, even though they're like badgering him and being kind of mean to him, they all laugh because he's yeah. funny. Those are his comedy waiter skills coming out. Yeah. And then right after Cato tells his joke, he says a man who looks to Cato like Wallace Shawn mm -hmm. comes in with Cato's friend Alan. And this is his lawyer. Oh, good. Bill Ganego or Ganego. Inconceivable. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so it's, just, it's, just, it's comforting to imagine Wallace Shawn coming to Cato's rescue. Yeah. And so Cato's lawyer goes up to Marsha and says, my client will remain silent and I'll answer any further questions for him. Ooh. Marsha Clark looked at her watch. It's five to one. You can have three minutes with your client before we take him to the grand jury. He's scheduled to appear at one o'clock. That's ridiculous, Ganigo said. How can you subpoena him for a grand jury the same day you want him to testify? Clark stared hard at Ganigo. Mr. Kalen is going to testify at one o'clock, and that's that. Lawyers are dope. Get them. And then Cato's lawyer turns to him and says, we're going to go down to the grand jury and ask for an intervention. That's a postponement. Trust me on this. And so Marsha is like, okay, time to go. And Cato's lawyer says, I haven't even had the chance to look at the police reports. Like, we haven't prepared in any way. This is truly ridiculous. And Marcia says to Cato, you're going to testify. That's that. She turned back to Ganigo and added, if you try to stop him, I'll have you arrested for obstruction of justice. Whoa! In response, Ganigo tore a piece of paper from a pad and wrote down all that he wanted Cato to say on the stand. It read, on the advice of my attorney, I must respectfully decline to answer and assert my right to remain silent. Wow. But there is something really, I mean, after all this research I did on white collar crime, it is really remarkable that like, this is how rich people do rich people justice is like, you simply don't say anything under any circumstances. Yeah. You should never talk to the police for any reason if you can possibly yeah. avoid it. It's like their strategy is always like, wait, say zero, because if you say nothing, they can't catch you in any lies. If you say, like, oh, I couldn't have done this crime because, like, I was in Tampa with my friend, then they can check. Were you in Tampa? Are there plane tickets? Who's your friend? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you just say literally nothing, they have to actually yeah. prove you did the crime. They can't just catch you in one lie. And once they catch you in one lie, it's easy to find other lies and make you look guilty. And also, don't talk to them because you think no harm can come of it because you're innocent. Because exactly. innocent people don't always seem innocent. Yes. <sighs> so... Cato's lawyer is telling him to treat this like he's a rich person, which is good advice. Yeah, yes. 
He's like, you have burnout hair, but you're going to get rich person justice. <laughs> and so Cato is led into the grand jury room and he, he says it looks like nothing so much as a college lecture hall. It's like he's back at UW-Eau Claire. Ooh. And so they swear him in and Marsha starts questioning him about the night of June 12th. Mm-hmm. And basically, no matter what she asks, Cato just reads off his piece of paper and says, on the advice of my attorney, I must respectfully decline to answer and assert my right to remain silent. Good message disciplined by Cato. (laughs) As we have said before, he does well if he's given direction. Yeah. Is this chapter of Marsha's book in all caps? Yeah. <laughs> like this burnout wouldn't say shit. There's some italics. Okay. So the way Marsha describes all of this is Cato's lawyer asked to have the weekend to prep Cato to testify before the grand jury on Monday instead mm-hmm. of Friday mm-hmm. and to go over the police statement. And Marsha's like, that's ridiculous. The statement is two pages long. You don't need the whole weekend. All you're doing is opening up more time and space for the witness to be contaminated and for OJ and his crowd and his lawyers to get to him. No, it's hard because it's like, yeah, that's true. It's yeah, just the, like Cato right. doesn't Cato yeah. is not really plotting any of that. Yeah. If yeah. We're to believe his account. It's like, you right. are right. But like, he's kind of not the person right. who you need to be putting the fear of God into. Right. And also Cato has basic rights under the justice system. Like, sorry, Marsha. Yeah, Cato Kalin has rights. Yeah. It's in the Constitution. It says Cato yeah. Kalin has rights. <laughs> and so before the grand jury testimony begins, she gets a call from Patty Joe Fairbanks, who is the senior legal assistant at the DA's office. Mm-hmm. And Marsha goes to see her and learns that OJ was supposed to turn himself in to Parker Center this morning. Mm-hmm. And he did not. And the whole voluntary surrender thing that was supposed to be happening did not happen. Ooh, so Marsha's in a bad mood when she gets into that grand jury room. Bad mood. Bad yeah. mood, Marsha. Yeah. Yeah. And all of the bad choices that have been made this whole week. Right. Marsha is having the experience that many people have now had courtesy of experiencing an epidemic, where if you're one of the people who's like worried more and earlier than other people in your life, you get to have the delightful experience of being ignored yeah. And then potentially watching the consequences occur. And you're right. like, I could have stopped it if I had done my job better, but I wasn't able to. So like, yeah. I don't feel good. I feel bad. Yeah. And everything that you've predicted is coming true. Yeah. Yeah. And it didn't matter that I was right. No one listened to me. And yeah. probably if the same thing happened, they still wouldn't listen to me. And yeah. damn you, Cato. Right. With your stupid freewheeling lifestyle and your half sentences and your luscious hair. <laughs> you know? <laughs> And your kickboxing lawyer. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah. Uh, so the phone rang. Robert Shapiro. Marsha gets on the phone with Bob and says, what's going on, Bob? This is no time to screw around. Marsha, I promise you he's coming in, said Shapiro. This is where I'm seeing John Travolta in my head. God, I do hear it as John Travolta. Right? Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that might be you, though. What do you mean? I shot back. He's had all week to get his things together. What are you guys doing? He's being checked out by some doctors, said Shapiro. His speech was infuriatingly slow, his tone condescending. I'm sure you've heard that he's very depressed. We just need to be sure that he doesn't go into custody in a suicidal frame of mind. Uh... Oh, I'm sure he's depressed, I snorted. <laughs> and so she and Bob have calls back and forth. Basically, with her being like, bring him the fuck in. Yeah. And Bob's like, can't just yet, just still right. working on it, you know. Right. And then he's like putting her on the phone with other people. Like he puts 
Saul Fairstein, the forensic psychiatrist they've retained on the phone with her. Why? What? Just to kill time, I think. Just to get her to <sighs> talk. It's very childish if that's yeah. what's going on. And she asked Fairstein for directions to the house, and he kind of seems to be giving her an evasive answer. And she says, Doctor, you'd better stop playing games here. Do you understand that you're obstructing justice? That's a criminal charge, and I don't think you need a record like that. Do you? Wow. She's just throwing out these threats, man. She's desperate. I mean, things are bad. It's like, she's yeah. like, will you respect the power that I have as an officer of the court? And they're like, no. Yeah. I mean, she also must know that these charges wouldn't stick, too, and they know that the charges wouldn't stick. I mean, like... But she's just seeing if it gets them to snap into line, I think. Yeah. And so she kind of has to end these conversations without any resolution because she has to go start questioning Kato. Right. It's almost one. So she has to, like, take a deep breath and compose herself mm-hmm. and go into the Grand Jury Amphitheater mm-hmm. and announce that she's going to do her opening statement on Monday and she's going to have Cato testify on Friday, which is like, that seems weird. Man. You know, it's like that she's like, we really need this guy on the record, like right the fuck now. Mm. She calls Cato to the stand. She has him spell his name, which she does. And she says, well, at least he could spell his name. Okay. <laughs> and she starts questioning him and he reads from his piece of paper. Mm-hmm. You seem to be reading from a piece of yellow paper, I said. Did your attorney write that out for you this morning? Yeah, don't fall for it, Cato. On the advice of my attorney, <laughs> I must respectfully decline to answer and assert my constitutional right to remain silent. Don't break character. <laughs> I couldn't believe that this twerp was taking the fifth. He'd read from that paper three more times before the four-person warned him that his refusal to answer questions was, quote, without legal cause, and that if he persisted in his refusal, he would be held in contempt. Now we had to find a judge to do just that, pronto. Oh, so they're retaliating. Yeah. She's like, fuck this guy. We're going to get him in front of a judge and threaten him with contempt and force him to testify. Although, aren't there scenarios under which, like, he would have come in and she could have interviewed him with a lawyer present and actually gotten this stuff? Like, he hasn't been particularly coy about what happened that night. I mean, he told the cops. Right. He was forthcoming with the cops. But Marsha thinks he's withholding information for whatever reason. Right. It just seems like we've now escalated into this, like, it's a big official thing. And it's like she's taken it to this new level. It's hard because it's like, it's not like it's, it's not like it would have been ideal to have him have a whole weekend to iron things out and for potentially the defendant because she doesn't know that he's going to end up in jail later today. Mm-hmm. And certainly the defendant's circle and his lawyers to get more access to Cato right. and to manipulate his testimony. Like that's a real problem and that's already been taking place. So like she's not wrong. Yeah. It's just I feel like she it feels like she's behaving in a really adversarial way with him and then getting upset when he's noticing that. Because she's kind of coming in really aggressively and he's like, hey, that feels threatening to me. Like, I'm going to protect myself. Yeah. And she's like, why is he doing that? Yeah. And it's like, Marsha, like, maybe you have no option but to treat him adversarially given the situation. But, like, you have to at least be aware that, like, you're going to get that response and then right. not right. keep escalating it. So what happens when they get him in front of the other judge? I will tell you. Um, Interestingly, Cato's book goes more into the legal issues than Marsha's does. Oh, And so Cato takes a stand again. He is asked if he's going to cooperate. And he says, on the advice of my attorney, I must respectfully decline to answer and assert my constitutional right to remain silent. I'm the decider. (laughs) 
<laughs> and so then he's declared to be in contempt of the grand jury. Okay. And is taken down for an immediate hearing. Okay. And so we are told in Cato's book, one of the major issues was whether, in fact, Cato could be granted immunity before the grand jury, which would then automatically remove his Fifth Amendment rights, which is his right to remain silent. Right. Because they can't throw you in jail. So you're then compelled to be like, yes, I killed that dude. Or like, yes, I stole that candy bar or whatever it is. Right. Right. Yes. You can't incriminate yourself if you can't go to jail. Yeah. And so at the Superior Court hearing, Marcia's asked why she won't just grant Cato immunity for his testimony, because that would seem to cut the Gordian knot. She responded that it might taint Cato's value as a prosecution witness by suggesting that he indeed had something to hide. And the DA's office had been forced to, quote, bargain for his testimony. Besides, she added, Cato wasn't entitled to immunity because he had already told the police what they wanted to know. Okay. And so the judge points out that there are really two issues involved, one having to do with the Fifth Amendment, the other with the Sixth, a person's right to counsel. If a person wants to confer with his lawyer, the judge pointed out, he's entitled to do so, especially if he's a witness and not a defendant. Thank you, judge. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you, judge. Chuliger. The Honorable Chuliger. This, of course, was at the heart of the dispute. Clark's office had treated Cato in every way as a suspect and defendant, falling just short of charging him in the case. Clark told the judge that since Cato had been taken into custody that morning, he was, in fact, a defendant, and therefore the Sixth Amendment and possibly the Fifth no longer applied. What? She's just flailing. Yeah, wow. She's like, no, he is a defendant. Fuck it. Yeah. I don't think that's how rights work, but okay. The judge replied that no warrant had been issued for Cato's arrest, and that according to the records, he hadn't been handcuffed when taken to the station. So technically speaking, he wasn't a defendant. At best, the judge said, and this might be stretching it, he was a suspect in a murder case. Yeah, and even that's a stretch. Yeah. Yeah. And so he says, you know, let's be real. He's a witness. He's not a suspect. He's not a defendant. Right. And then Marsh is like, look, I just got off the phone with fucking John Travolta. This guy's being a dick. (laughs) John Travolta's being a fucking dick to me. I don't know what to tell you. Meet me halfway here, Dr. Chuliger. And so the judge says to Marsha, you know, really, like, what is the downside of giving Cato the weekend to consult with his lawyer and prepare to give testimony? Putting aside, he may flee the country and be in Brazil by morning. And according to Cato's book, everybody in the courtroom laughed like, haha, what a crazy thought. Someone who's involved in this trial fleeing and disappearing and driving away toward the horizon. That's silly. Haha. Look, it's not as if the defendant in this case is going to be in a protracted low speed chase from <laughs> one graveyard to another in one hour's time. So everything's <laughs> going to be exactly the same on Monday. And ultimately, Marsha can't really argue with that. She has to concede and be like, okay, fine, we will do it on Monday. But then does that give Cato immunity or that was a separate issue? I think they just dropped that. I think that they, yeah, they were like, well, this is an option, right? And ultimately settled on let's give him the week to talk to his lawyer and bring him in on Monday. Okay. And so they go back before the grand jury and Marsha apologizes to everybody assembled for having brought them in for a testimony that they're not going to be able to hear. And she says, I silently pray that they wouldn't hold it against me. Okay. Even worse, would they reject any of Cato's future testimony because he had taken the fifth? Great. What a way to start. I mean, that that's you, Marsha. That's on you. As soon as the judge hit the gavel, he was handed a piece of paper by the bailiff. He paused and then announced to everyone in the courtroom that O.J. Simpson was now officially a fugitive from justice. No one had known during the hearing that the infamous Bronco chase was in full progress and being Ooh. televised live across the nation 
and around the world. Because we didn't have cell phones then. Otherwise, would people would have gotten texted. We did have cell phones. They there just weren't that many of them. Yeah, and I don't I don't think text messages existed. People had beepers, so you could be yeah. you could text like OJ loose. I guess <laughs> that sounds like he's a slut. It's <laughs> not. I don't think that's well. He was so. <laughs> yeah, and so the grand jury is released, and Cato heads out and goes back to Alan's house and turns on the TV and watches his friend in a low speed pursuit. Yeah. So him and Paula and Marsha and everybody are united by watching this weird slow motion, whatchamacallit happening. Interestingly, Marsha doesn't describe learning that OJ is on the loose in the grand jury room. She describes getting a call from Phil Van Adder back at her office and learning it that way. Oh, okay. As I drove home that night, I was too bummed to listen to the nonstop reports on drive time radio. Which, like, I love that she's one of the principals in this whole story. She's like, I'm too depressed to listen to the Bronco Chase. Yeah, she's like, I need some Almond Brothers. I'm not listening yeah. to this new shit. <laughs> I hope she listened to some Almond Brothers. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's uh, the story of when Cato met Marsha. Mm. And our next episode, our 10th episode, is going to be all about the Bronco Chase. Yay! Because that's all anyone has been asking for. I know! For... <laughs> 200 years. <laughs> it's like Radiohead playing and everybody wants to hear Creep. That's like all anybody That's like all anybody yes. requests from us. They're like, do the Bronco Chase. <laughs> it's our free bird. So what are we left with in this episode? We are left with our first experience of our subjects entering the legal system. Mm. We've seen the first chapter of this as a courtroom mm. story. Mm. So, yeah, what kind of a start are we off to? And so next time, things are going to get even worse. Yeah, and we will talk about the chase. I am interested in why everyone else thinks it's so interesting. I <laughs> don't think it will be that interesting. <laughs> Wait, but what? I will do really? my best. No. <laughs> it's a chase. It's not a person. It's the story of, like, a car driving real slow in one direction and then driving back real slow in the other direction. <laughs> I know that something will appear and that there will be human elements of it that I'm really compelled by, but I don't know what they'll be yet. Mm. So we'll find out. And uh, if our listeners get bored, I have a French kickboxing movie that I can recommend. 